Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady, and uh, you realize it says Lou Weiss on the screen, but I'm really Tim Grady. Lou happens to be out in assignment, so I'm here with Chris Keel, who is with the National Association of Credit Managers to do the report that they issue each month, which we always find fascinating. The credit managers are those people who tear their hair out because they're not sure if they're going to get paid six months down the road. Chris, how are they feeling at the moment? Well, you know, they're in relatively good spirits. Um, you described their life quite accurately. Um, <laughs> every company has a credit manager, and they're generally at war with their salespeople. Um, the salespeople will come in and say, I just got this great sale. They're going to buy millions. And the credit manager goes, it's not a sale until we're paid and and I don't trust these people as far as I can throw them. Um, so it's constantly a battle between wanting to do what's right for the company and bring on new business, but you also are constantly trying to figure out what kind of credit shape these customers are in. And more importantly, you're trying to figure out their environment because even the best of companies is not going to be able to withstand a recession. For example, back in 2020, our index showed just a complete collapse because companies were not able to keep track of their credit. There were slow pays, there were bankruptcies, there were collections through no fault of their own. But the credit manager is, is like, well, I know it's not your fault, but still, I need my money. You know, you've got my machine, you've got my inventory, and you were going to pay me in six months or nine months or whatever. And now you're not. And so your problem is becoming my problem um, in a hurry. So the credit managers are sort of art and science. I mean, they're certainly going to look at all the financial data to figure out what shape a company is in. But they also have to be a little bit of a soothsayer and say, well, I think the economy is going to be good in nine months or six months or whatever. And that usually becomes the determining factor as to how long somebody gets terms. If they feel comfortable about what's happening in the next year, they're not going to have problems with long terms, 120 days, 180 days. I actually knew a guy who had, did business in Brazil and was required to give 530 day terms in Brazil. You know, it's like, this is a country that has inflation like every 20 minutes. Um, and it's like, yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen in Brazil in three years. Um, it's like, I don't think so. Um, so most credit managers would, would like to be, you know, a little, little more constrained. So if you look at this month's data, um, it's pretty strong. We're seeing consistency in what we call the favorable factors and those who have listened to me before know that there are four of those um, sales at the top of the list everyone likes sales then you have applications for credit dollar collections which is what makes credit managers happy and amount of credit extended and that last one is the one that has been most encouraging because what you're seeing is numbers that in our index is up into the 70s and those people that are familiar with pmi purchasing managers index know that diffusion drill anything over 50 is good anything under 50 is not so good when you get into the 70s you've got 
good, solid growth. And what's been propelling that amount of credit extended number, our companies are doing a lot more ordering than they used to. We started to see this last fall, kind of in reaction to the supply chain chaos. And you and I have talked about this before. Companies were like, God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this part. So normally I would order a hundred. I don't trust the system. I'm going to order a million um, and make sure that I've got everything I need. This may come back to bite you in the coming year if you end up with too much inventory, but it certainly drove a lot of this additional request for credit. Then at the beginning of this year, we've seen a lot more purchasing of machinery, getting more kind of prepared for the coming year. So we've seen better numbers from machine tool makers, from the companies that are didn't see a lot of activity for the last couple of years. I just today got the latest forming and fabricating job shop consumption report from the fabricators and manufacturers. This is the worst acronym ever created the FFJSCR, the fifth is you know, <laughs> it's like, God, you know, talk to the defense department, man, they're good at those things. I mean, they'll, they'll come up with something that, you know, rolls off the tongue, but just looking at it initially, there's a lot of capital investment going on. And a lot of these small to mid-sized companies are like, look, we, kind of suffered through the last two years with machines that needed to be replaced. We need to replace them now. Oh, so that is a long-winded answer to a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's why we have you on the show. And we always appreciate you being here. Uh, let me not forget to mention that the National Association of Credit Managers um, is that organization that Chris writes the report for and we're happy to have them both on the show and in our Manufacturing Outlook digital magazine that goes out every month. So you can get it there as well. Just subscribe at manufacturingoutlook.com. Chris, a lot of people have been asking, and I know we've been asking over and over, are we back to pre-pandemic levels? And if I look at just GDP dollars, and the estimate for this past year is 22.939 trillion, and in 2019, we finished at 21.539 trillion, I think. It feels like we're beyond the pandemic, uh, at least from a GDP standpoint. Yeah, we pretty much are. And one of the things that was unusual or interesting, depending on how you want to look at it, for the last couple of years was how consistent manufacturing was even during the pandemic year. 2020 ended up being a pretty good year for manufacturing kind of by default because the consumer had been loaded with money. I mean, that was the response to a recession that always works. You throw money at the consumer, you hope that they spend like drunken sailors on leave and push you right out of the recession. So tried and true, that's what we do in 2020. It never seemed to occur to anyone that if you closed everything, people were going to have trouble spending that money. Um, so the consumer was like, hey, thanks. But the restaurants are closed, the events are closed, the theaters are closed, I can't travel. How much do you expect me to spend on my 
housemates. <laughs> it's like, you know, I can't go anywhere. So we ended up spending an awful lot more money on things. Um, and we all sort of saw this. We saw the growth of online shopping. We saw people investing in everything for remodeling their house to accommodate Zoom calls. I mean, all those different things. And as a result, you had a pretty good manufacturing year. Now, manufacturing subsequently slumped a little last year simply because people got back to spending on services not to the same level they had been but close and now we're kind of seeing that balance return so people are spending about as much as they spent on manufacturing in 2019 2018 and beyond and about the same on services so we're kind of getting back to our more normal routine but we're still spending differently. We're still spending a lot more online uh, than we used to. We're still spending a lot more on kind of home-based entertainment appliance sales are continuing to really stun. I mean, you're seeing a lot of growth in appliances still, um, home entertainment centers, things like that. We have not seen the spending on things like automobiles because not that there's no demand, there's plenty of demand. There's just a shortage of cars and trucks. You know, people are saying, well, I'd love to sell you this truck or this car, but it won't start because we don't have a chip in it. So if you don't mind pushing it down the road, um, then you're more than welcome. But <laughs> it's like, it's in its was talking to people in the automotive sector. And it's, it's bizarre what they cannot put in cars right now, they don't have enough chips to put in sunroofs. So if you want a sunroof, you're out of luck, because that takes a lot of chips. Apparently, that's complicated, you know, whatever. So yeah. <laughs> You know, with with my balding pate, I don't like sunroofs. I just get a sunburn, you know, <laughs> so it's like, no, no, I would rather have a roof. But so we're still seeing a little bit of, of variability. Mostly the GDP numbers have come back. We're probably sitting at about 5% GDP growth for the year 2021. We are looking at probably 4 to 4.5% growth in 2022. It will start a little slower than we originally thought, because even as recently as mid-December, they were predicting 4.5-5% growth for the first quarter because of Omicron, Omnicon, whatever it's, whoever named that watches too many Transformer movies. Um, and it's now being predicted to come down maybe two, two and a half percent for the first quarter before it starts to push back up again in second and third. Chris, how did the retail sector do in this past holiday season? My sense is they did better than pre-pandemic based on GDP numbers, but you've had a closer feel for that. Yeah, they've done pretty well. Retail did quite well uh, compared to where it had been in previous years. Again, a little bit of a shift in terms of what people bought and how they bought it, but we had the, the usual pattern, and retail is always fun to watch at the end of the year. The first round of analysis focuses on Halloween. Halloween is now the second largest spending holiday in the U.S. calendar. And this was the fifth year in a row that adult costumes outsold children's. Um, so 
<laughs> it is now an adult holiday. It is now a decorating holiday, and we spend a lot of money. Then we end up going into Black Vember. Uh, it used to be Black Friday. Now it's the entire month um, is full of discounts and sales, trying to capture the early shopper. And at the end, which is the kind of the critical moment where retailers go from going in the red to the black, that's when the American mail saves Christmas. And we do it every year the same way. We have no clue what we're doing or what we're buying. We think Christmas is going to be sometime in January, and we've got plenty of time. And we start to panic about three days before Christmas and buy whatever we can get our hands on. And this is not a joke. 50% of what men buy in the last three days before Christmas is purchased at a convenience store. So if if the women in the audience have ever received a six-pack and a packet of Slim Jims and a scratcher's ticket, they now know why. Um, <laughs> so... But we had the usual surge. Men bought a lot of stuff, and that lends to the last wave, which is the return wave, because all of the junk that we buy for our wives gets brought back after Christmas. They routinely spend two to three times what we spent on the original gift because they're annoyed at the nonsense we bought them in the first place. So it is it is a pattern that has gone on for 20, 30 years, and it happened again this year. So we had a, a decent season. One of the things we track with the credit manager's index is bankruptcies. And we will normally see a lot of bankruptcies in the retail sector this time of year, because if they did not get through Christmas in good shape, they're not going to rescue themselves now. I mean, it's going into their slow season. The bankruptcy numbers are still very good. Um, on the index, they're still in the mid-50s. And we have not seen the big waves. And we are kind of aware of that. Because if you remember the last few years, the end of the year was full of stories of Toys R Us are going under, and this company is going under, and that company is going under. We haven't seen that this year. Um, partly, the weak players are already gone. But retailers got through this season reasonably well. The crisis they're facing now is all the junk that they tried to get in for Christmas is arriving now. <laughs> so it's like, hi, you know those Christmas ornaments that said 2021? They're here. And you're like, um, yeah, it's 2022 now. What am I, am I supposed to go with a little marker and <laughs> it's, it's 2022 now so oh it's gonna be that's gonna be messy i'm glad you brought up capex because capital expenditures is an area that i've been kind of looking at to say how is 2022 going to be how aggressive are companies going to be because that tends to be a long-term spend the roi on that is not next week it's much longer and it sounds like it's going to be a pretty strong year for 2022 yeah, it should be. And there's a couple of additional things that are feeding into that growth. Um, we've talked about it before in the show about the reshoring that we're expecting to see. The supply chain crisis, again, is not new. It's been developing for a number of years. It became acute in the last couple of years, but people have been complaining about the supply chain for a long time. 
some statistics that came out just in the last few months, something like 69% of people who are currently either producing in Asia or sourcing in Asia, 69% are likely, very likely, or extremely likely to reshore this year. The expenditure expectation is around a trillion dollars worth of reshore activity. In order for that to work, there are three criteria. As a company starts to think about coming back home, they want three things. Number one, they want to be able to do a lot of what they do with automation and robotics. They still can't compete with low wages in China. I mean, if you're going to be labor intensive here versus labor intensive there, you're going to lose your shirt because there's no way, particularly now with wages going up. So number one, it's got to be robotic and automated, which pushes that investment in CapEx even faster. Number two, they want to have access to transportation. So they're going to locate close to rail lines, close to highways, any place where they can get an advantage when it comes to transportation. And that starts to put a lot of emphasis on things like Canadian Pacific buying Kansas City Southern Railroad. They're doing that in order to shift freight from the West Coast to the ports in Vancouver and Lazaro Cardenas, rail it to the middle of the country and do the break bulk and distribution in the center of the U.S. rather than on the coasts. So, and you're getting lots of, of those kinds of experiments. And then the third criteria is basically companies looking for communities that want them. If you're in a suburb and some factory says, hey, I'd like to locate here, you suddenly get the NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard, you know, I don't want some noisy, nasty manufacturing. But that can be good news for smaller cities, more rural areas. Um, we've talked about this before, too, but 75% of the manufacturers in the United States have 20 or 25 employees or less. So they're small companies, they're feeders into bigger assembly operations, and those are the ones that tend to get scattered out into the, into the rural areas because the rural communities are like, I don't care if you're noisy and there's traffic, it's jobs, man. Um, when, when can you come? And the suburbs are like, oh, no, 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 you can't be doing that next to the soccer fields because that will interrupt Penelope, you know, so. <laughs> Does the USMCA help Canadian Rail with their purchase of you know Kansas City's operation in terms of moving stuff back and forth across the board? Yeah, it played a factor because the, one of the reasons that that Kansas City Southern was in play is that they have the best network into Mexico. They bought the second largest Mexican railroad a number of years ago and transformed TFM into Kansas City Southern de Mexico. So if you go to any of the manufacturing communities in Mexico, Queretaro, San Luis Potosi, Monterey, any of those, Kansas City Southern dominates that, that rail yard. So Canadian Pacific, and Canadian National were both interested in buying Kansas City Southern, but the antitrust rules made it really hard for Canadian National because they were worried about kind of the competitive element. Kansas City Southern and Canadian Pacific are the two smallest class ones. So when they combined, they didn't 
kind of disturbed the balance of competitiveness, they became one of the larger competitors, but they're still smaller than Union Pacific or BNSF or Norfolk Southern or Canadian National. So the, and their footprint was almost perfect. Canadian Pacific comes right to where Kansas City Southern track starts. So they aren't even going to have to to deal with with overlapping service areas and the change will be pretty quick um, because of that lack of overlap they already had done a lot of business together and this is just going to accelerate it what it does is really push the development of warehousing and distribution centers at an epic rate. I mean, right now, Amazon alone accounts for one-third of all the manufacturing or development of, of warehousing and distribution in the entire country. Wow. Big, big number. What an influence. Yeah, very big number. They are now the third largest employer in the United States. The only employers larger is the U.S. military, Walmart, and then Amazon. <laughs> Wow. Well, let's talk about labor for a minute because 4.5 million people in November decided to change jobs, quit their jobs, and everybody's saying, well, they're going for a nickel more down the street. And I'm wondering, is that most of it or a lot of them saying, you know, I don't want to be in a cubicle anymore. I don't want to be in a hospital anymore. I'm going to go do my own thing. Right. This is the highest quit rate we've dealt with probably in 20, 30 years. And what you're referencing is the stuff that comes out of the JOLTS report, Job Opportunity Labor Turnover Survey. Now, there is an acronym, you know, the FFJSER, completely unpronounceable. But, you know, leave it to the government to say, hey, it's the JOLTS report. That's great. I mean, it has all the impetus you need. So it tracks the people who just up and quit because they're different than the people who switch jobs. I mean, if you've been given a job offer and you move to another job, that's one thing. If you just wake up one morning and say, God, I hate this job. I hate the people I work with. I hate my boss. Most of all, I quit, you know, with the job market, the way it is right now, I can find another job at any time. I want always the same Tommy. Um, the number one way that manufacturers or anybody else recruit these days is poaching. They go after each other's employees because they can't find the trained people they want anywhere else. You know, there's no pipeline, so they go after each other's. So money is number one, but number two, and very high up the list, is kind of work environment. And what you found this last year are people that wanted to work remotely and the boss says, nope, I want you to come in the office. And the person says, nope, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to come in the office. I don't need to come in the office. Maybe they're worried about COVID. Maybe they just don't want to deal with their commute anymore. Um, I have friends in places like Chicago and LA and the like, and they said, man, it had nothing to do with COVID. It had nothing to do with anything. It had to do with the fact that I do not want to die on the Dan Ryan. You know, I mean, it's like every single day as I confront going to work, it's like, I'm going to waste two and a half, three hours just getting to work. 
And it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, they, they took advantage of opportunities and moved out to Schaumburg and Elgin and that sort of stuff. And it's like, do you have any idea how long it takes to get to downtown Chicago from Schaumburg? You know, it's like, I leave on Monday and I arrive on Wednesday. Um, it's like, so I want to work remotely. I was talking to the Iowa Department of Economic Development. They now consider Des Moines a suburb of Chicago. There are so many people that are working remotely for Chicago firms. And they're like, why would I pay the prices in Chicago when I can live in Des Moines work for the same company and make a lot more money. I mean, I was watching one of these HGTV things where they were rehabbing some Chicago home, which is one of these tiny little shotgun things, $2 million. And it's like, uh-uh. I live in Kansas City. For $2 million bucks, you can buy a heck of a house. <laughs> yeah, right. You can own the block. <laughs> yeah, you you've got acreage. You know, if you've got if you've got a two million dollar home, you undoubtedly have horses and cows as well. Uh, so, <laughs> well, additionally, you mentioned something that I have been expecting for quite some time, and that is the implantation of automation and robotics in not just manufacturing, but even some service industries. I expect it to begin hitting fast food in the not too distant future, where you're hamburger may be assembled down an assembly line uh, much more efficiently than it's being done now. Yeah, you've seen it already. And it's, and it's I, for example, I do a talk every year to McDonald's franchises through an accounting firm. And that was one of the questions, you know, how are we going to deal with increased minimum wage and shortage of workers and all that kind of stuff. And I was expecting them to be fairly concerned. And they all just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, touch screens. The people who get paid small amounts of money are the counter help. People in the back already get paid fairly decently. They're the cooks. And so we're going to replace counter help with touch screens and people can mess up their own orders. Um, so it's, you know, it, it, you just are reacting to it, but you're seeing it in healthcare too. Um, the Japanese, for example, have for years used robots as attendants for the elderly. Instead of trying to find somebody who can be in the house and keep track of people who are suffering from dementia or whatever, they, they have a robot. And the robot has a little smiling face and it has a monitor on it and it just kind of hangs around. And if something goes wrong, it sends a note to the hospital and the Japanese love their robots more than people. And it kind of comes down to kind of the reality when you get to that point in life where you're not in control of your faculties anymore, you do a lot of embarrassing things. And you doing that in front of a person is humiliating. The robot is just looking at you like, you're an inferior organic, you know, we're going to take over the world at some point anyway. Um, so they don't, they don't judge, you know, they're just, they're just there and keeping an eye on things. And that kind of technology is, is becoming a lot more common. We've seen it really in everything from home security to how we take care of our house. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, well, we just see it in, the other day I was going through an airport, they have the, the, whatever the sellers the little shops there's nobody in there at all 
there's no cash register. There's nothing. You just walk through the door. It reads your credit card. And when you walk out of the store with whatever you're carrying, it automatically debits it from your credit card. It is completely, utterly automated. You know, and with my luck, the credit card would register that I took everything out of the store. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it was like, why do I have a bill for $900,000? Um, but that's the direction you know, self-serve and retailers, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I, in my tender youth, I was a gas jockey, you know, back in the day, you filled the tire and checked the oil and pumped the gas. Now we do all that ourselves. So. That is very true. Very true. Well, always uh, great to chat with you. And I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy and you work with a lot of different organizations. So we greatly appreciate you sharing the Credit Managers Index and this discussion on the economy. One more thing I'd like to touch on because it's such a big piece of manufacturing expense categories mm -hmm. that they can't control, and that is fuel. Right. And the challenge there is the oil uh, per barrel price has gotten back up into the 70s, which looks to be healthy. But I almost feel like in the U.S. we did it at our own expense because we shut down fracking and we've reduced this and we're putting pressure on that and now we're buying oil from overseas again yeah we still do the majority of our purchasing domestically the only refineries that are still buying from overseas tend to be on the east coast and they're reacting to the fact that there's no really good pipeline system that goes from where oil is produced in this country to the East Coast. All you really have is the colonial pipeline and that's it. So for the New Jersey refineries, for example, it's still cheaper to buy it overseas by tanker. The trouble with oil right now, and it's always been the problem, is that it is a true global international phenomenon. And the reason that we've seen prices jump has had almost nothing to do with our own consumption patterns. It all started when natural gas prices hit 600% higher than they had been in Europe. <clears throat> and the Europeans were desperately trying to buy LNG from anywhere they could to meet that demand. And that drove up the price of gas in this country, <clears throat> which forced the utilities to turn back to oil rather than gas and that's part of why the gas got driven up and the reason that it went up 600 percent is that the russians are creeps russia wants the europeans to do things the europeans don't want to do the russians want them to pay for and authorize nord stream 2 which is a new gas pipeline and most importantly lately they want the europeans to pledge not to help ukraine and the Europeans are like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to watch you invade Ukraine. And the Russians are like, fine, then do something else for gas. You get gas from us. It's like, you want the gas? Give us what we want. Give us what we want. We ship you gas. And so the Europeans are being blackmailed. They thought that they had a certain amount of protection because they'd invested so heavily into wind power. This is the year the wind has not blown in Europe. They're getting 20% of what they thought they would get from wind farms. So it's, it's one of those lessons that people in the energy sector have said for years. It's like, yep, alternatives are great, but you're dependent on Mother Nature.
if the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you've got problems. Um, that's why people went with fossil fuels, because when you're burning a rock or a leftover dinosaur, you just kind of burn it um, and it's there for the burning. Prices are probably settled at this point. We're probably going to be looking at 65 to 75 uh, bucks a barrel, a little less for West Texas Intermediate than the national or international Brent crude. But the producers are still a little bit hesitant because they look at this and say, we understand the demand is here, but we understand that it's because of the Russians and wind and all these weird things, which could change any day. We're waiting for the daily commute to come back. That's the number one way the U.S. consumes fuel, going back and forth to work. It's 30 minutes on average nationally each way, 30 miles on average each way. You multiply that by 300 million people, that's a lot of gas. Only now we're at about 60% people still working remotely. And so the oil sector is like, hey, when those people start driving again, then we'll start producing again. But at the moment, you know, 60% of them are sitting home and the car is parked in the garage and it's not burning fuel. So that's that's part of the of the game. The oil producers don't want to produce and then store fuel. <laughs> that's usually a bad thing. It's like, what are you going to do with all the extra gas? Well, I'm just going to put it in a big tank and hope for the best. Um, <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> no, I'd rather just produce it and get it the heck out of here to someplace else. Well, Chris, as we wrap this up, uh, another quick question, because you brought up an interesting point, and that is the work-at-home crowd. Uh, What's the likelihood that a great majority of them are never going back? That, that manufacturing and you know the rest of the industries are just going to have to find a way, as they did during COVID, to, to operate differently. It's really going to depend on what people do for a living. You know, manufacturing, construction—they never really did have the option to work a lot at home. People think they take a dim view of the guy that wants to take his laser cutter home. Um, it's like, no, no, it really has to stay at the factory. You can't put it in your garage. But if you're in accounting or law or sort of a traditional office environment, a lot of your work was done in isolation anyway. You didn't really interact with people that much. So it's perfectly fine to work from home, do it with Zoom calls. The groups that have been most uncomfortable with remote have been salespeople because they cannot really do what they do without some physical interaction, particularly in manufacturing. I mean, even in the height of the COVID mess um, in 2020, I was giving a talk in Cleveland with the Forging Industry Association because... I mean, I talked to these guys and I said, look, it's a hot spot. It's, you know, why are you meeting anyway? And it says, we can't sell a forge on a Zoom call. I, you know, we have to be in front of our customer 15, 16, 18, 20 times trying to convince them to spend millions of dollars on, on this equipment. So we have to meet. We have to. There's no choice. We know it's a risk. We don't care. If you're an accountant, you're like, look, I don't talk to people anyway. If I had a personality, I wouldn't be an accountant. Um, so I don't care if I work remotely. And so you're going to have that split. 
And it particularly as companies worry about recruiting, they now are in a situation where, look, we want you to go to work for us. I know you don't want to move from wherever you are. Don't just work remotely. I was talking to a guy yesterday who's managing a remodeling association in Boston from Charlotte, North Carolina. So he just does his work all day and he flies up to Boston once a month to meet with his board. But the head of their organization is in North Carolina. I think we're going to, we're going to see a lot more of that. Some will go back to the cubicle and uh, that's a necessity, but I personally work from home and have for 30 years and I love it. So I'm I'm the same way. You know, I used to be a professor and and did that for 15 years. And for the last 23 years, I've been the one of the two partners that runs Armada. And yeah, I either work from home or a hotel or an airport. Um, yes. <laughs> those those are kind of my locations. Yes, and if you want to get a hold of Chris, that's Armada Corporate Intelligence, great organization. They put out a report, by the way, called. Uh, ASIS, A-S-I-S. And Chris, could you give us just a quick explanation of what sure, that is? Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> we decided to create about a year and a half ago a, a monitoring system for manufacturing. We look at the industrial production numbers that the Fed generates every month, and we've developed this rather elaborate um, modeling system, the strategic intelligence system. If you want to know why it's so complicated, the guy that developed it for us is a retired lieutenant colonel um, who basically adapted sort of the military types of things to, to this. And what's even more important, his accuracy is number one in his life because he used to be an artillery officer. And he said, you know, if you're off just a little with artillery, you end up killing your own people. Um, so you really want to be specific. So the ACES has been coming in with like 96, 97 percent accuracy on predictability. So if anybody out there is interested, we do a free trial for this thing. It's like, you know, two months and it generally sells for like 74 bucks a month. So it's not outrageously expensive. The best way to access it is just to go to the website, which is www.asisintelligence.com. So it's pretty easy to remember, ASIS Intelligence. Even though I know that's an oxymoron, um, it, it, will, it will get you to the website. You know, artillery guys, they can put a 105 howitzer into a pickle barrel at five miles. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was very, very proud of, of some of his accomplishments during his, his tours. And he says, you know, there's a great sense of satisfaction when you can literally take out somebody's outhouse. Um, so, <laughs> Well, Chris, thanks for joining us again on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We want to encourage people to go to asusintelligence.com. Is that right, Chris? That's correct. All right, and uh, go to the NACM.org, the National Association of Credit Managers. If you'd like to re- get the report that Chris started to talk about at the top of the hour, then visit us at jacketmediaco.com for all of our podcasts, including this one, and thanks for joining us.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.